I don't know if we could have picked better hymns and songs of worship than what we did. Before we get started, let me pray for us and welcome the Holy Spirit to come and join us and do His good work in us. Lord, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. Jesus was Your Word. He's the exact representation of who You are. We thank You for Your Spirit. It quickened us and drew us into your presence, caused us to have faith, to repent, to believe, and to draw near to you. Father, we welcome you in all your power to join us this morning. Father, we are broken, we're rebellious often, we're stiff-necked and we're stubborn. And yet you have mercy, draw us, break us, make us into faithful children that would honor your name and draw near to you. Father, I pray, O Lord, get me out of the way. Speak to us through your spirit, through your word. Empower us, O Lord, to make your name great. Throughout Clanton and Chilton County, throughout our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be talking through John 11 today, spending most of our time in John 1 through 44, and really even focusing on one aspect of, uh, of this event the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, what we have to do is we. As we look at this passage, this passage comes in the context of the greater overview, the greater picture of John. Why was John written to us? What was the purpose of this gospel? In John 1, 1 and in 14 and 18 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In Hebrews 1.3 it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. In John 20, 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many things. It's kind of a wrap-up. So we, we come with the, the front end that John proclaims who Jesus is. He's not a good teacher. He's not a good leader. He's not a good man. He is God. He's the very essence of who God is, sent to us in human form. And he wraps it up in John 20. 30-31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the purpose of John is one to declare that Jesus is the Son, that Jesus is the Messiah, and He will prove that not only through His words but His deeds, the power demonstrated in his life. And we see that throughout 
uh, the passages that we've already gone through, right? He proves or he demonstrates the, this fact of being the Messiah, the Son of God, through his works and his words. It's a series of I am's, right? Throughout, we've already read through this. Almost every Sunday we're hearing Jesus say, I am, I am, I am. He's revealing, he's unpacking who he is. The full disclosure of who is his person. And he culminates this in chapter 11, where he gives the greatest sign. So we see in, in, chapter, in Genesis 4, in his words, he says, I'm the living water. He tells that to the Samaritan woman. In John 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I am the manna. God provided manna for you in the desert, but I am the living bread. If you eat with me, you will never die. I never run out. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. In John 11, as we'll see, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying things that we, so that we cannot mistake who he is. He's not a good teacher. Much greater than that. He's not a good man. He's much greater than that. He is God in human flesh. Powerful. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say it. Many people have said, I am God, or I am the, the great Messiah. It's another to prove it, to demonstrate it. And we see that throughout the book of John. At the wedding at Cana, we see him in John 2 turn water into wine. He, he, has, he has the power over the molecular structure of his creation. We know that he created it. John 1 tells us that. Colossians tells us that. He is the creator. He has power. He has authority over the very molecular structure of his creation. How powerful is that? We saw it in the healing of the official son in John 4. When he didn't even have to be there, he just speaks and the boy is healed. Reminiscent of when he speaks and the universe is launched out. The very power of his word. We see it in the healing of the cripple at the pool. A man who's been crippled for 38 years. Jesus shows up and speaks. The man is healed. He picks up his, his bed and he walks. We see it in John 6. When he said, in the feeding of the 5,000, where he takes a few loaves and a few fish, and he feeds a multitude. He multiplies what he has. We see him in, also in John 6 when he's walking on the water. We've seen it in other epistles where he calms the sea. He speaks, and the creation obeys him. This is no ordinary man. He's revealing who he is to his people. And then now, in chapter 9, we saw the healing of the, born, of the man born blind. And now, in John 11, he caps this by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I have power even over the grave. And we'll see how he says that, how he, how he demonstrates that. So let's read John 11, 1 through 44. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, this is interesting because we don't hear about Mary until chapter 12, right? He tells that story in 12, but he understands that he, the people who are reading this, this gospel are familiar with Mary who anoints Jesus' feet. So he's just reminding them that this is, remember Mary that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. That's her brother. So they, they understand that. And so the two sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He has a familial relationship with Lazarus. And, and he uses the word uh, phileo, the, the brotherly love. He's, it's the one in which you are fond is ill. Now get this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he gives us right at the beginning the purpose of this whole chapter. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of, of Lazarus' illness? He states it right here. He says, Lazarus is ill for the glory of God. So that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, he's not saying so that the Son of Man may be praised. That will happen. He's not saying that. What he's saying is so that the glory of God would be demonstrated through his Son, proving that his Son is who he says he is. He's demonstrating the glory of God. He's going to reveal the glory of God. It's God's self-disclosure to us that may lead to praise. But this is the purpose so that God will disclose who he is to to these uh, men and women and to us. Now in verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Can I get this down? Because it's bugging the heck out of me. And I'm sure it is for you guys as well. Is that all right? Maybe that will be a little less annoying for all of us. Now, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, again, get this. There's two, there's two things that I think Jesus is wanting to demonstrate here. One, he wants to demonstrate to us his great love and compassion for those he cares for. Secondly, he wants to demonstrate his glory to those. Now, it's interesting, you know, when, I, when he says, when, when um, the sisters say, you're, you're our brother whom you care for, you're fond of, whom you love, phileo, it's not used here. When Jesus says this, he says, now Jesus loved, that's an agape love, a self-sacrificing, others-centered love toward these folks. And that means something in a second. So now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay. That's odd. That's very odd. What is he saying here? He has this phileo, this fondness for Lazarus. He then says, he then says, I love him deeply. I am willing to pour, sacrifice myself on behalf of these three. That's his love for them. And yet it says, therefore, or so, Jesus delayed. Why in the world 
would he say that? Why would Jesus delay? Because if he loves someone, wouldn't he run toward them? He has a higher purpose. He has a higher purpose. And I think, and we're going to talk about this next week because we're going to break this passage down into I'm the resurrection and the life. Next, we're going to be talking very specifically about how do we deal with suffering in light of God's grace and compassion and mercy and power in our life. And I think this is a great picture here that God, that Jesus loved Lazarus and the two sisters. And because he loved them, he delayed. What's he going to do? How in the world will he demonstrate his love and compassion for them by delaying? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. He's probably somewhere up in the Transjordan, across the Jordan, about two days, a, a day's journey away. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were... Uh, just now seeking to stone you. Now, are you going there again? So he's delaying two days, and he says, it's time for us to go. Now, it's interesting. Throughout John, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus. He has all the power and the authority, but he's always, always subjugated to the, to the will of the Father. He never acts unless the Father gives the say. Everything he does is according to the Father's will. For whatever reason, God wants him to delay, and now it's time to go, and he's moving. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anybody walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Now, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you might believe. So that you might be convinced of. So that you might entrust yourself to. But let us go to him. So that Thomas called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, well... Let us go also, that we may die with him. And it skips the wind. They take a day's journey. Then they arrive outside the, the village of Bethany, which is probably going up through Jericho before you get to Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Okay. Now, so that we don't think that Jesus, that Jesus' delay caused the death of Lazarus. We don't need to be thinking that because it took a day's journey. So the girls send a servant and say, go tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Jesus delays two days. Then, he, then it's time to go, and he, and he and his men journey to Bethany, the one full day. That's where the four days comes from. Lazarus probably died almost immediately after the first servant was sent, and Jesus knew that Lazarus had died. So Jesus delayed it and caused it, but what he's wanting to do, and we're not sure of this, but this may be the reason. In Jewish culture, the Pharisees said that when a person dies, their soul hovers over the corpse for three days. This was kind of a, 
a general thought. They think it goes back to this time, but it explains kind of what, why he emphasizes four days. But the soul would hover over the, the body for three days. But after the third day, there was no return. The body would be decaying and the soul would depart. So maybe Jesus waited four days so that there would be no, no doubt that this was a miracle of a resurrection from the dead. He wasn't simply resuscitating Lazarus. He was raising him from the dead. Regenerating life in a corpse. So, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She understood the power of her friend Jesus. She understood that he had the authority to heal her brother if he had been there. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. She understood the intimacy that he had with the Father. She understood the relationship she had with the Father, Yahweh, so that if he chose, he could ask, even now, he could ask the Father, and the Father would work on his behalf. That's faith. That's faith. And we'll see why that's important in a minute. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day because she believed in the resurrection along with the Pharisees. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Another, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Not that I can provide resurrection. I am the resurrection and I am the life. In his declaration to her. Whoever believes, trusts, is convinced in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Fast forward just a little bit. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were uh, with her in the house, consoling her, now we don't think this is, he's not referring to Jews in the sense of a theological group. These are just friends and neighbors, okay? This is not the Pharisees as, we, as he calls Jews in other, in other places. These are just friends and neighbors of, of, and also professional mourners. Uh, that are coming to console Mary. So when he saw they, uh, these Jews uh, and consoling her, he saw uh, Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I get this. This is key. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He burst into tears. Is the rendering there. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, I checked with several commentators on this particular passage. When it says that Jesus, when he saw them weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was greatly troubled. That, that idea is a little light here. You look at the Greek. The wording that he uses in secular Greek is, is the same word that he used for a horse to snort when the horse is furious. Whenever it's used with man, it's, it's the connotations that it is anger. And most of the commentators say in this passage, we shouldn't look at this as that simply he, his heart was broken or that he had compassion. No, it's deeper. The Greek word means, it, it gives this picture of a, the waters roiling, turbulent, agitated. We can even look at this and say, this was more a picture of Jesus being enraged, angry, because of what he is experiencing. Now, is he angered or enraged at Mary and Martha because of lack of faith, or the Jews because of lack of faith? No. It says right after that, he wept bitterly. There's no mistake. They saw that this man loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He had compassion on them. So why is it that Jesus is agitated and deeply troubled even to the point of rage? And you see it again when? It says exactly the same thing. When he comes to the tomb. When he comes to the tomb. And he sees death. Why would Jesus be angry over death and yet moved by compassion over the people who are experiencing death? I think he's angry because there is no greater picture of the curse of the fall than death. It wreaks havoc. Death and sickness wreaks havoc on the lives of his people and on the lives of mankind. It makes him angry. And he will do something about it. Calvin says it's like a man who is about to go and he sees his opponent, death itself. And he comes into it and he's going to wrestle with death and subdue it and gain the greater victory. The ultimate victory. So when we look at our friends and our neighbors, are we moved to both anger because of sin and compassion because of the ramifications of sin? Let's go back to where it all began. Back in Genesis, the beginnings, God created a good earth. Everything was complete. Man had right relationship with God and walked with him in the cool of the day. Man had right relationship with each other. Adam and Eve, can you imagine being married and not fussing? Can you imagine being married and not agitated with each other? 
working in complete harmony with each other, giving fully of yourself to, the, to your spouse and they giving fully to you, and being in right relationship with creation so that when you tend to the garden, I, I love gardening. We've planted tomatoes and uh, all kinds of stuff, sweet um, sugar snap peas and, and peppers, and within just a few days of planting, guess what comes up? Grass, nut, nut grass, weeds, all that. Back then, they didn't have that. It didn't take toil to try to make something happen and grow. It grew. Mangoes grew. Never had a bug in it. Tomatoes grew. And it was joy that Adam was able to go out into the field in the gardens and work it because that's what he was called to do. And they had fellowship with each other, had fellowship with God, and had fellowship with creation. And then another voice enters the garden, the serpent. Now, the serpent, his strategy is to confuse and deceive. And he confuses Eve and he deceives her and says, you're missing out on something. God's not giving you something. He's holding back. And because of that deception, she took what was forbidden. That God already said, you can have everything, everything, but not that tree. Everything else is yours, but just not that one. And which one did she want? That one. Because, God, you're not good. Because you're withholding that one from me. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The Satan's promise to Eve was that one, she could have autonomy. She doesn't need God nor his revelation. She is perfectly fine in and of herself and self-sufficiency. Eve, you can be like God. You can be autonomous and you can be self-sufficient. You don't need to depend on anybody. And she believed and she took. And we fell. The result was rebellion, where we habitually break through the boundaries that God has set. I want, I want to have what I want when I want it. Self-sufficiency. I don't need to have depend. I don't need to be dependent or submit to anyone. I am myself. Simon and Garfunkel. I am an island. I am a rock. It's not very good to be a rock in an island. And we're self-absorbed. I am the center of my universe. When we do that, when everything went from looking outward to now looking inward, everything was broken. It only took one generation. One generation. Where Adam and Eve's sons committed murder. Three generations later, one of Cain's sons boasted that he was able to outdo his great-great-grandfather and kill even more. And we have spiraled since then. Families broken. Children without fathers or without mothers. I know one lady whose daughter, 16 15 years old, has bipolar. And she was talking to her mom just recently and said, Mom, I wish I could be different. I long not to struggle with this. I don't know why I do what I do. It's broken. A father estranged from his daughter because he had had addictions and left the family at a critical age when her daughter was growing up. And he feels it every day, the brokenness of sin in his life.
a young man who's willing to give up everything, including his family and his little boy, because there's such a hole in his heart and his life that he's, he's bound up in addictions. It's all around us, guys. It's all around us. In Galatians 5, and the reason I was spending more, we, we've got to understand the tragedy of what has been lost. When we look at, at uh, Galatians 5, <clears throat> and he compares the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. That's the thing. The works of the flesh are the things that we naturally gravitate to. These are the things that are as natural as waking up and eating breakfast. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger and rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, like the, and the things like this. I warn you, and I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a very clear picture of who we are. Those are our neighbors. Those are our children. That's us. That's me. That is who I am. Compared to who we were, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and gentleness against such things. There is no law. There is a great cost to the fall. It would be like taking a beautiful vase, throwing it on the ground and shattering it into a thousand pieces. That's what's happened. But even in the shattering, Jesus or God's promise to man was that I will send a redeemer. I will send a helper. I will send Jesus. And he shows up in the first century. And Jesus steps into our mess, steps into our junk. And though he, de- though he deserved, as Philippians says, who says, he deserved to be worshipped and adored. He made himself the very nature, the very essence of a servant. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For your sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So get this. We'll we'll wrap this up real quick. Jesus is angry because of what sin has wreaked on man and his creation. He did not. So that anger at sin was also paired with what? Compassion. He wept. That is illustrated in what he did, God's view of us, so that when he sent his son, when he promised him in Genesis 3, it was God having compassion to not leave you in that state. But I will rescue you. And I will do it through my son. And he demonstrates it time and time and time again. Through the words that he says about himself and through the works that he demonstrates. In Ephesians, a great picture In Ephesians 2, it says, you used to follow after the passions of your heart. You used to follow after the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath. I should destroy you. And yet, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy. In Ephesians 1, it says, 
He predestined us. He adopted us. He, it was his good pleasure to lavish his grace and his love on us. That is the heart of God. And we see that demonstrated here in this passage. Where God is angry because of sin and the havoc it's wreaked. And he has compassion on those and he will demonstrate his power to redeem and restore. We'll finish this up. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, she's the practical one. Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead four years. There's no hope. He is decomposing. It's no longer even a body. Probably can't even be recognized. Think about that. Think about a Middle East decomposing body. Four days. The stench. And then Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He's already prayed for the resurrection. I knew that you always hear me, that you have always heard me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me, so that they may see your power demonstrated, your glory demonstrated. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Some commentators say that the authority of Jesus, if he had not called him by name, every tomb on the planet would have delivered the dead then and there because of the authority of the name of Jesus. Lazarus, come out. And what happened? Immediately, Lazarus shuffling out in, in, in grave clothes. And Jesus says, take those things off of him. Unbind him and let him go. Think about this, guys. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, every cell in that man's body regenerated. There was no stench. It's completely whole. There was no decay. Completely whole. And he came out. The question that Jesus asked at the beginning, why am I doing this? So that you may see the glory of God and that you may believe. Do you believe? Are there, are there Lazarus in your life that you feel, Lord, keep the stone there because of the stench? Yes, I believe. It, it reminds me of the father whose son had come to the disciples and his son was demon-possessed and they can't heal him. And Jesus says, do you believe? He says, yes, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Martha's experiencing that. You and I are experiencing that. And yet God says, do you believe Paul Connor? And I will demonstrate my glory to you. Adam, I will demonstrate my glory to you. Do you believe? King will do it. We have a great picture of Jesus. The same Jesus that we're about to read about. 
is the same one that was here that humbled himself, subjected himself. And John, the same author, in chapter 4 of Revelation, and at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated at the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the the appearance of an emerald. And there were 24 thrones around that throne, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. And the living creatures and everything that surrounded the throne looked at him and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Verse 11, it says, Worthy of you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and by your will they were by your will they existed and were created. Grace, fellowship. Do we believe that? Because the same king who will reveal himself at that day is alive and well today. He's alive and well in us with power greater than we can ever imagine. So when we see our neighbors, when we see our friends, when we see our family in the brokenness of sin and the havoc that it wreaks on everything around us, can we be angry, furious, enraged at sin and what it has done? And in the same breath, weep, weep because... We are helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And call on the name of Jesus. Jesus, call them out like Lazarus. Call them out. Can we be bold and believe that He is our King? That He would demonstrate His glory, self-revelation, self-disclosure to us every single day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not limited to frail men. Thank you that you are not limited to our unbelief, but that you will work in us and around us and through us for your glory and for your honor and for your praise. Go before us this week, O Father. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.